This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. It's Father's Day, and I have my ode to my father, not to mention all those fathers who are suffering with mental health issues. Fathers are important. Dr. John Weisler weighs in on nutrigenomics. Is personalized weight loss the way to go? Also, what about those smartphone apps and oximetry? Are they helpful if you get sick during this pandemic? Dr. Gurdeep Parhar joins me to talk about the latest hope in a treatment for COVID-19. Cuddle buddies, dilfs, and genital injury. Why are they on the rise? Ouch. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. A little bit of a shout out to fathers everywhere. Um, this is a day to honor uh, these important people in our lives. Uh, today is June 21st. Tomorrow is June 22nd, and that's uh, the dedicated to dad's mental health matters because I think we aren't as comfortable talking about mental health matters for men as we are for women. But things like perinatal depression and anxiety certainly can occur in men as well. And uh, one in 10 expectant or new dads experience perinatal depression or anxiety in, in, according to an Australian study. Uh, perinatal depression and anxiety occurs across the community and can happen in new dads of all ages and from all backgrounds. Of course, uh, depression never knows any bounds. Um, dads can also be affected or traumatized by the birth experience. And, you know, this is one of those, um, you know, where we shame men. If you don't go into the labor and delivery room, watch the entire thing, um, you are never going to be a great dad and nothing can be further from the truth. It's not for everyone. And about 56% of dads do not seek support. So we need to recognize mental health matters, uh, especially for new dads, signs and symptoms of perinatal depression can include irritability, helplessness, anxiety, sleep problems, loss of confidence, anger, stress, being run down, working more, lack of interest in sex, agitation, feeling overwhelmed, feeling unmotivated, and less patient or also withdrawing from others. You know, dads want to enjoy fatherhood and it's very important that they do because dads are important and they contribute uniquely to the development of babies and their children by establishing a positive relationship with them. And so if you're looking for ways to help, it's important to be honest. If you have signs and symptoms, reach out to somebody that you trust, maybe a friend, a work colleague, your partner, uh, a family member, or your physician. Treatment is available and so worthwhile investing in. And remember, always eat healthy and exercise daily. Be father-inclusive in family care. And that's a message for professionals, for healthcare professionals. The father is very important. And so the, the important question to ask is, how are you doing, Dad? Uh, so let's not forget uh, the fathers and understand that uh, they have feelings too. And it's also uh, important that they feel safe uh, to express their emotions and their feelings and that those emotions and feelings need to be validated. Many, many people suffer with shame and it's that they don't feel worthy. And oftentimes a big event in one's life, like the birth of a baby, will bring out that 
shame. Are they worthy? They're not good enough. Have they not felt good enough? And they may manifest this in certain behaviors and taking it out on other people. So it's important to recognize that that might be happening, but it's also important to recognize that in yourself and to seek the treatment that you need. There is no shame in getting treatment for mental health issues. Your entire flock of people will thank you for that. And I'm certain you would be supported in that. So my little shout out to fathers everywhere. It's not an easy job. Uh, You're on duty all the time. We're going to be talking about your duty a little bit. (laughs) Uh, But I wanted to read to you a little bit of a lesson from having uh, a great father. He didn't have a father growing up. He died when he was young. I would say, how are you, dad? And he would answer, I'm the luckiest guy alive. I don't know how I got to be so lucky. Over and over, he had a positive response to any question. He was filled with gratitude no matter the day, always ethical, responsible, and quiet in his own way. Near philanderer nor drinker, reliable he was, so good-looking, our neighborhood was abuzz, and he never strayed. A clear conscience is a soft pillow, he would say. He laughed, he cried, but he never lied. Your word is your bond, another one of his statements. You will many times over, he said, get up again, and you will fall over. You will fall many times over and over. Get up again and again. Say you're sorry. And if you went in with a problem, he would put it in perspective, often viewing it as a pimple on the face of your life. And it usually was. He said yes, but he also said no. Teaching lessons was the way to go. It's a gift to have a dedicated father who doesn't use substances, is respectful, is home every night, who provides security and love. So for all the fathers out there, great job. Keep doing it. And here's my little poem, my favorite poem uh, that I that uh, I actually got from a psychiatrist that I had worked for. And at the time, or I worked with, at the time he was probably like 70 years old. He was uh, on the cusp of retirement. And he had posted this in our lunchroom and this particular poem. And he said that it was from his father, uh, had passed it down to him. And he thought it would be helpful for anybody uh, that came along and and read it. And I agree. And I think it might be helpful, especially for fathers out there. So, and the father, I think we figured out that uh, the poem was at least 150 years old, which I thought was really interesting because it seems like the same issues we had then we still have now. Anyway, this could be a way to be, and the author is unknown. Here we go. Grow, be tall, yet reconciled to yourself, the weeping child. Love, be easy and be warm. Find the fire beyond the form. Forgive yourself, forgive. Sins long dead and learn to live. So happy Father's Day, everybody. My guest is the medical lead for the critical care treatment of seriously ill cardiac patients at Lionsgate Hospital in North Vancouver, British Columbia. He has further training in implantable cardiac defibrillators. He has an interest in echocardiography and the only cardiologist to perform transesophageal echo at Lionsgate Hospital. He's a sports cardiologist. He provides consultations and screening for the Vancouver Whitecaps, BC Lions, Vancouver Canucks, multiple Olympic teams, and other professional and high-level 
athletes. He's a member of the Sports and Exercise Executive of the American College of Cardiology. He is a regular public speaker. He's a great public speaker. He's an author and also a frequent guest to this program. He's a clinical instructor at the University of British Columbia and a great advocate and medical co-lead for the use of telehealth. He joins me on the line. You've heard his voice before. He is Dr. John Weisler. Hello, Dr. Weisler. Hello, Maureen. Happy Father's Day to you, first and foremost. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on the show. Well, thank you for joining me on the show. Um, I didn't think, I thought we'd run out through the segment with all of your accolades and uh, (laughs) accomplishments. (laughs) Um, So I'm honored uh, to have you on the show, as usual. Um, So we have lots to talk about. And the first thing I want to talk about, and I probably didn't even tell you this yet, is, um, you know, during this pandemic, uh, we've heard word that many people have, you know, died at home. They were too afraid to present to the emergency departments uh, with their heart disease and heart issues and, you know, potentially fatal heart attacks. Um, Have you, is this something that you've seen in the emergency department at Lionsgate? Um, yes, to a point. Um, so for sure, uh, Maureen, the um, amount of emergency presentations for heart disease are down quite a bit. They're, you know, they're, they're way lower in my experience. And the sort of the local estimate is it's about a 40 to 50 percent drop in terms of re- reduction of like heart attacks and people coming in with heart failure and other complications of, of their heart disease. Uh, this has also been seen in other jurisdictions, going back to China, where the pandemic was first described in Wuhan, they, they showed a similar finding, and then Italy, and um, and subsequently in the U.S. and Canada, we've seen a, a marked reduction in multiple different types of diseases, not just cardiology, but certainly cardiology is quite a bit lower. Yeah, very interesting. And do you think it's the result of um, p- people are just basically afraid? They're afraid of covid Yep, I, I think um, I think fear is a big factor for sure. I think there's probably a small amount where people are staying indoors so much they're not like you know stressing themselves as much. And we don't have much snow here, but you know the stereotype is somebody getting up and shoveling snow and getting chest pain. They, they haven't people haven't had quite as much of an opportunity to get into mischief that way, I guess, or to get chest pain. But I think a lot of it is still fear because the numbers are down quite a bit more than you know, the population just being more sedentary would, would predict. So it's, I think, uh, I think fear, and I hear that from, from patients a lot that they're, you know, I, I'm doing most of my patient assessments via phone or sometimes via the webcam, depending on the patient's preference, really. And, uh, and, and most of the time, the patients are glad that they can just do it by phone and they don't have to come in. There's, so there's still, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of fear about coming in and seeking care. Absolutely. And telehealth, which you're a bit of an expert in, it seems to, it seems it would have taken physicians. And if you have a question out there, I just want to throw the number out again, one 9898 If you have a question for the doctor, one 9898 or you can text to that number as well. Um, you're a telehealth expert. Uh, it, some folks have, have said that, you know, it would have taken physicians to switch over to telehealth it would have taken about 10 years. Um, but, you know, it happened pretty much overnight. <laughs> and yeah. what I, from what I'm hearing, doctors love it. And so do the patients. And you mentioned one thing about parking, for example, you know, like no one has to park. You know, I, that's what I hear in my office all the time. It's so yeah. difficult to get a parking space. So what are your thoughts on telehealth as as we, you know, move forward in, in the new normal? Yeah. 
Uh, great, great question. Huge topic. And you're right, a lot of doctors' offices transformed very quickly over to being mostly virtual. I like it. I think um, I think the for the vast majority of encounters, it works well. And there's, there's parking and also like the hassle of traffic and everything, too, that people are able to avoid. And if they're at home caring for kids or something, they... Um, they don't have to worry about maybe arranging childcare or bringing their kids along with them. So it's hugely convenient. I think um, I'm a little like, so I think I, I, I hope telehealth is here to stay for a lot of what we do. I think most of the time it's, it works very well um, in my own, like just off the cuff or you know, total, total guesstimate is that it's good for maybe 80% of the patient encounters I do. You know, the, the physical exam that we learn in medical school is maybe unnecessary for a lot of follow-ups, but it is still important for, I think, for some new patients and also for patients when they have a big change in their symptoms, so they're getting more chest pain or shortness of breath or something. I, I think there it's, uh, it can still be useful. Um, I don't know if we always need it, but, uh, but certainly for a lot of the follow-ups and even some of the initial consults, like if people are going to see me to discuss their cholesterol or, you know, to show me their angiogram and do they really need the recommended bypass, for example, we can do a lot of it through telehealth. So I think it can replace a lot of in-person visits. I, I just hope that everybody realizes that there are some things where in-person is still better, which I think they do. And, and I think what sometimes people might forget that uh, in your, if you're seeing 80% over the phone, and I've heard 70, 80%, um, you know, it's only 20% of patients that are coming into your office. So you can actually space them out quite nicely. Yes. So there's no, you know, limiting the exposure and keeping social distances, distancing practices. Absolutely. You have to really think of the patient's journey, you know, not just in your office, but in your waiting room. So you have to keep people spaced apart there. And then, you know, I, I practice in a group with three other really good cardiologists and, you know, we have a nurse practitioner, we have testing. So it's the net combination. We have to make sure everybody is just doing a little bit in person so that we're able to space everybody out in our in our waiting area. And then, um, you know, between patients, we clean the room very thoroughly with the disinfectant wipes and sprays to um, try to minimize any risk of infection. So you're right, I think um, the, the small percentage we do see in person, we're able to space out and then we can do that cleaning and it all works basically. It, it seems to work well. Yeah, exactly. We have the same. We have about six practitioners in, in my office as well. And so we're all very mindful and um, you know, it's actually a, a new, new stressful job for the medical office assistant, the MOA, to make mm -hmm. sure everyone is scheduled appropriately mm -hmm. uh, and properly. So, um, so weight is another big issue. Uh, obesity and excess weight, people who have been diagnosed with COVID-19, they may uh, have difficulty being ventilated because of their additional abdominal weight. Mm -hmm. There are so many diet and nutrition programs out there from keto to uh, the bio diet to Weight Watchers to low glycemic index, all sorts of different ones. But there is also something called the uh, something called nutrigenomics. <laughs> so uh, this sort of personalized medicine uh, or personalized plan to um, to lose weight. Uh, so do you think there's any validity in that? Uh, so I think it's a really um, interesting idea, uh, nutrigenomics. Uh, I think it, it, there's um, we, we need to do more, um, I guess, science, more literature before it's widely offered to people. So the idea is that, you know, we all have different genetic compositions, different genes, and they affect how we respond to, you know, a number of different things. You know, our genes, how tall we are, and, you know, all sorts of how, how muscular we're going to be, and maybe how our body handles sugar, and, you know, and, and then and a, and a whole, a whole, you know, 
tons of different of different things are affected by our genes, and, and including you know that is including what we eat, how well we respond, or how we respond to different foods that we eat. Um, there are genetic influences in that. So the idea behind nutrigenomics, and I think it's a really cool idea. It's really interesting. The idea is that we can identify different gene variants and maybe identify. You know, some people will be more sensitive to sugar. They're more likely to put on weight or they're more likely to have high cholesterol if they eat a high fat diet. So there's genetic variability um, between uh, between between patients. And, 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 you know, we can maybe use that to help find the right diet for you. So you can have a nice diet, uh, feel feel full um, and, and not be miserable, but also control your weight. Uh, I think these are really interesting ideas. I think that it's it's too early yet to use them widely or in clinical use. I think, um, you know, th- th- there are some uh, organizations that will offer like a nutrigenomic screen. You can do a DNA screen and these will identify anywhere from 7 to 30 to 35 different gene variants. And then you'll get a report um you know, saying that you're a little bit more or a little bit less sensitive to to different things. So one that one that we um, looked up, for example, it has it has uh, seven different uh, dietary factors, and it looks at the gene, some of the genes involved with that. So it can tell you if you're more sensitive to salt or more sensitive to cholesterol, or if you handle blood glucose differently. Um, I, I think the big limitation uh, right now, Marine, of all these approaches, they're very, I think they're they're interesting. Like you you can do them, but Using them to direct therapy hasn't yet been, you know, um, validated. So, um, you know, they haven't shown that if you do this screen, if you then, um, you know, uh, if you get a result and you adopt a specific diet, does it in fact lead to the weight loss that you hope it will? You know, and, and it, it, I always I like to say that there's been a lot of good ideas in medicine that haven't um, haven't panned out. So, I think it's a really good idea. Uh, I think it needs further study before it gets widely adopted. If, I think if you're interested, if you're considering one of these, um, you know, I, I think um, it's reasonable. I think you just have to realize that, that the science is not yet there to support widespread use. You know, it's interesting because the science isn't there for a lot of things, and yet people adopt them. Uh, recently, somebody asked me an, an opinion on something in particular, and, you know, the word natural was used. And I said, this is going to be, you know, adopted by many people. This is huge because it says natural and, and you know, not proven, a very small amount of people who had tried it. And, and then I'm not talking about nutrigenomics. I'm talking about something else. There was a word given um, – um, you know, a word given that was was this type of therapy that was a made up word, you know, but it sounded pretty cool. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. it, it, it's, you know, there are so many people that have all of these, you know, ideas with no proven science behind them, yet people try mm-hmm. them. And so the nutrigenomics, uh, genomics, sorry, uh, it, that study of how different foods may interact with specific genes um, to increase the risk of crop common chronic diseases, not just weight, but type 2 diabetes, heart disease, stroke, and certain cancers. This is a huge ship that we're, <laughs> that we're mm-hmm. um, you know, this is a wide berth we're, that we're trying to, or somebody is trying to say, this is going to turn, you know, basically there, this, this encounters so many, or encompasses so many health conditions that may impact COVID-19 if you get it, because that's, uh, you know, it's about your comorbidities, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, doing doing the science on things like, like this is, is really hard. I mean, it's, it's not easy to do. I think many of us in the medical profession, you know, do regard um, genomics as the future, both with diet and 
you know, response to medications and a whole host of other things. And you're absolutely right that, you know, one genetic factor, the reason it's one of the reasons it's hard to study is that one genetic factor can interact with, you know, numerous other genes. So they, they give one example in, in one article, there's one that uh, looks at, there's a gene that's involved in fat oxidation and it interacts with all sorts of different genes for sugar and, you know, insulin sensitivity and other things. And so then if you want to study it, you know, and just say, you know, does this variant, should you adopt a certain diet? It's very hard to do that and to prove it, you know, because it is so complicated, even though all of these, all of these, um, all of these medical issues, all of these risk factors are indeed important both in how we respond to COVID-19 and for our health in general. You know, weight is extremely important and our fitness and uh, and uh, how well our heart is, how well our, how well our lungs work, these are all uh, very important. Dr. John Weisler, cardiologist, is on the line with me and we're talking health and cardiac health and it's never been more important for you to get in great shape and have good health than now because of this pandemic. The pandemic or the virus is still around. We have restaurants closing in Edmonton. We have uh, cases turning up at schools. We have had cases at dinner parties. Just because we flatten the curves and re- the curves in these different provinces uh, doesn't mean that the and we've loosened restrictions. It doesn't mean that um, the virus is not there. So, Dr. Weisler, I just want to talk to you about um, health. And so, hot off the Instagram press <laughs> from one of my nieces, <laughs> she put on this. Um, I won't say the name of the product, but immune support supplement, original, helps support your immune system. It's a crafted blend of vitamins and minerals, uh, and it's very berry. And she writes, damn, these are good. Somebody ought to take them away from me, laugh out loud. Uh, so there are so many phony, false things, promises uh, that, you know, that this actually has a claim on it that's going to support your immune system, and people are going to believe it. And they're going to overeat them because they taste so good. What's the best way uh, to be healthy, especially have good heart health? Question, uh, Maureen. And so many people uh, buy these supplements and, and love them. And, you know, it, it's important, I guess, to mention that they're really not proven to be a benefit. You know, the, um, um, it, it's, a, it's a really nice idea, right, that maybe if you take extra of these nutrients, you know, whether it's vitamin C or whatever, antioxidants, that maybe you're going to make yourself more resistant to the virus and healthier. But the evidence that that actually makes a difference really isn't there. Many of them are sort of based on like a nice idea that, you know, there's an association that was shown in some sort of dietary study that, you know, people that did better had a little bit more of this or that. It doesn't prove that that's the reason that they did better or that if you take it in a pill supplement that you can make yourself do better. And it's important to remember that because these supplements often cost a fair bit of money. Best way is still the, the boring stuff that we all know we should do anyways, but you know, it's it's to eat a healthy and balanced diet um, and to try to get regular physical exercise, control our weight, and, you know, for the heart in particular, look after things like our blood pressure, our cholesterol, and our blood glucose, which we all would anyways don't smoke. Um, the blood pressure and avoidance of smoking are, you know, also particularly helpful at avoiding COVID-19 as well. So they all kind of line up together. And, and it's important because if you should be one of the unlucky ones that gets COVID, um, you 
it's best to be in the best shape possible. Would you agree with that? Exactly. Yes, exactly. Because if you get if you get COVID, the um, as as you know, the first portal of infection is like the upper airway, and you rely on your immune system trying to trying to get there. So you need good blood flow to the to the to the tissues of the upper airway, allow immune cells to get there, and then if you're unlucky, it will migrate into your lungs. So again, you, you need um you know the, the COVID uh, causes inflammation in the in the lungs and and impairs our ability to breathe properly to get oxygen into our blood and get carbon dioxide out. And so if your lungs are already in bad shape, you already start at a disadvantage. You're more likely to be one of those people that needs to get a ventilator care or other advanced therapies. So the better you are to start with, the more reserve you have to try and fight this infection. And we hear a lot about people with hypertension uh, as a comorbidity who are actually having poor outcomes. So why is that? That uh, And many, many people have high, untreated hypertension. They, they live in denial around that. Uh, we've talked yep. about it before. So why is it so bad to have hypertension and COVID-19? I, I don't know that we know um, all of the answers, Maureen, but there's a, a few factors for sure. And, and hypertension is tricky because, you know, you don't have any symptoms most of the time if your blood pressure is high. Um, but remember that your blood pressure is the sort of resistance that your heart has to work against. So your heart has to, if your blood pressure is high, your heart has to pump harder than if your blood pressure is normal. Um, high blood pressure also injures the arteries. So the arteries to your kidneys, the arteries to your heart, and a little bit the arteries to your lungs. And um, so it, it both it impairs your, your, your body's ability to respond to a COVID infection in the lungs. And then um, we also know that with coronavirus infection, it also causes clots to form sometimes inside your body. So it's what we call prothrombotic. You're more likely to have damaged arteries that you know, could act as a site for clots to form if you've already had high blood pressure. So high blood pressure both makes the heart work harder and it damages the other internal organs that then can get further affected by COVID. A medical school lesson in heart health. Thank you so much. (laughs) Really appreciate all the great information, Dr. Weisler. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Enjoy the rest of Father's Day because back to reality tomorrow. Fortunately, the nurse is joined by a clinical professor from the University of British Columbia, a medical doctor who is dealing every day on the front lines of COVID-19. You've heard his voice before. He is the one and only Dr. Gurdip Parhar. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Happy Father's Day to you. Thank you. Today. Hope you've had a wonderful day. Well, uh, my family sent me interesting signals. They bought me uh, running shoes and a shirt that was a bit too small. So I I think they're uh, they're they're wanting me to address the COVID-19 pounds. They don't just come out and say it. They hint. They're they're passive-aggressive, are they? The the message was received. You got it, though. Good for you, though. You weren't offended. You didn't lash out. You didn't get upset or cry in a corner. Well, there's always tomorrow, but no, not today. Well, that's good. Okay. Stepping out, are you? (laughs) All right. Well, okay, here we are. So some people can't step out. So that's actually a great segue into the question that I have for you. And if you have a question for Dr. Gurdip Parhar, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Or you can text us as well. Um, So the question I have for you is I've heard this from some of the patients in my clinical practice uh, that have um, had people in their families who have been sick uh, with, you know, what may or may not be COVID-19. With the loosening of the lockdown restrictions, 
are we first first question is are we seeing more of those bread and butter bugs out there like colds and flus that's a, a, an excellent question, Maureen, and I think it's it's tricky to know. Initially, I think we saw fewer cases because people weren't passing them on from one to another because of the social and physical isolation. There just wasn't, there weren't people passing them on, so you would have thought there was fewer cases. Now, as we start to open up, I think you're going to see more of those cases. Um, certainly in this past week, I've had probably about a dozen patients um, talk uh, complain about upper respiratory sort of infections and one even with a pneumonia, and none of them were COVID-19 positive. So it's hard to know, Maureen, right now. Um, the initial thought was that we'd see fewer cases of even influenza um, just because people were keeping their distance from others. And, and in fairness, also being more, more cautious about not going to work or school sick. And many people were doing that before, but they definitely won't be doing well. Certainly shouldn't be doing that now. Absolutely. And I have a caller on the line from Winnipeg. Good evening. Good evening. Thanks for taking the call. Happy Father's Day. Thank Last you. week I had asked about racism in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And if I understand correctly, the response was about how some patients state preferences about certain types of doctors. I, and now, apparently in BC, they've had incidences and there's a call in line for people of indigenous backgrounds who have been discriminated against because doctors and nurses in hospitals were betting on alcohol levels with indigenous patients. So my question when I originally asked it was from your point of view is, um, I don't know how to put this, just if you had faced that or if you saw it happening to other groups in healthcare, Dr. Parha? Yeah, yeah so as I, I just to expand, so there was a, a complaint made and information brought forward that um, um, patients um, who appeared to be um, um, intoxicated with alcohol, that um, staff in the hospitals were betting on how high their alcohol level would come back when they had a blood test done. Um, so most of us would be absolutely horrified that any such game is being played because certainly alcohol use and alcohol abuse is a, is a major health problem and needs treatment. It's, it's a health condition like any other health condition. So it is horrific. Um, so I will disclose that back when I was doing my training um, in hospitals in BC, I did witness it as well. Um, what's interesting, though, is my memory of it was not so much that it was singling out Indigenous people. I think it was a, um, and it only happened once or twice. But I remember, and I was I was the I was the lowest on that power hierarchy, so not in any position to ever participate or to even say anything about it. But I remember there was some, you know, people guessing. It wasn't a game necessarily. But people guessing on how high somebody's alcohol level might be. Um, absolutely unacceptable. Um, absolutely not tolerable. And 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 I understand if it's then focused on um, people of certain ethnic groups in certain area, indigenous communities that, that it puts up extra barriers that shouldn't be there. Um, so uh, the news today was that people are asking for a hotline to be set up so anonymous and such incidents can be reported. And I wish back then there had been because many of us would have reported it. Right, so um, it's it's a, it's a very important issue, and and I guess my disappointment and sadness, Maureen, and to the caller, isn't isn't that it's happening, but that it's taken us this long to actually address it. I, I agree. I mean, it's just absolutely horrific, and uh, you know the allegations are that there's it's indigenous people that this game has been uh, played on. Um, and but the thing is about any addiction or alcohol use and abuse and alcoholism and intoxication, 
is that it knows no bounds. It does not discriminate. And, um, and so it's a very unfair stereotype. And uh, unfortunately, I have experienced, um, you know, I've heard healthcare practitioners speak uh, disparagingly about certain uh, ethnic groups or people or, um, you know, just uh, stereotypical ideas. And, and I, there was something on Facebook and it said, you know, have you tell me you've spoken up whenever anyone used a particular word. And I said, yes, I have. Every single time I have. I can honestly say that. Um, and because it just, it, it just burns at my core because I just love people. I love all people, honestly. I, and I just have zero patience for putting anybody down ever. And, and I, and will not be a party to that. And I don't think that we need to be a party to that ever. And people need to have the courage to actually stand up. And it's very difficult. I understand that. Yeah, but- and, and I agree, Maureen. And I think that um, people who are scared of losing their jobs or if you're a trainee, like a student nurse or a student, a medical student, they're scared to speak up sometimes. But now those of us that have the privilege of some confidence in our voices do do need to speak up. And, and, and you're absolutely right. I think we do need to call this out. And I really want to thank the caller for having called um, two weeks in a row on such an important topic. Um, I'm really impressed by that. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that as well, Mary. And, um, you know, I, I, and you're absolutely correct. And it's, you know, the thing is, is, is people are afraid to speak up because they're afraid they're going to lose their jobs. And I really, I mean, really, are we like that? Yes, we are, apparently. You know, um, you know, people, and so many people are losing their jobs today, and, and people aren't even being considerate around that. I've heard some horrific stories about uh, job loss um, and the way that it's done. You know, have we become this discompassionate, un- unempathetic, unkind, vulgar society um, where we're not inclusive. Anyway, it's, you know, I I do think if you speak up, there is a way to speak up to a trusting person. There is always a way. And and I, I just believe in, and call me naive, but I believe that things will work out better for you um, when you are, you know, when you have integrity and, and when you stand up for somebody else, having been bullied, okay, (laughs) not once, not twice in a, in my career, um, not three times, I, I think actually four times. And it was a horrific experience. And I think that's probably why I, um, I stop at nothing to speak up. And, and yes, I am in a position. I can appreciate that Dr. Parhar where I can speak up. So, Please speak up. I beg of you. There are so many people suffering out there. If you know anything about me, know that I am extremely principally oriented and certain things drive me crazy. We were talking about uh, being derogatory, making derogatory comments toward other people. And I have to say, there have been times that I have called out people on the street, um, like men who are yelling at their wives and called them out. And then all of a sudden the man is like, oh no, that wasn't true what you saw. I'm like, no, I saw exactly what I saw. Anyway, so that's just, that is just me. Dr. Parhar joins me on the line. We are talking COVID-19. Dr. Parhar, are you still there? Yes, I'm still, I didn't I'm scare still, you I'm away. Sure, but, no, no, you didn't. But I'd like to have somebody videotape, uh, video record you yelling at somebody on the street. That's quite entertaining. I have done that more than once. So don't be 
yelling at anybody or don't call someone, don't treat the, I will be watching people thinking, uh, are they actually being mean to that child? And then I will call them out on it. Um, anyway, just, that's just in me. And, and that's how I was raised as well, just to, you know, treat everybody with uh, dignity and respect. All right. So we're talking about COVID-19. My heart's racing now. Um, uh, but there's some evidence that uh, an old drug might be a new treatment. Tell me about that, please. So after all the news and the false hopes with things like hydroxychloroquine, which was uh, spoken about a lot in the U.S. about and then, uh, malarial and other um, used for other things that turned out not to be helpful and actually turned out to be quite dangerous. And there's some antibiotics that also didn't um, come through in terms of what people had hoped for. Now there has been actually research from the U.K. and Oxford University, and it's, it's a medication called dexamethasone. Essentially, it's a steroid. It's been around since the 1960s. It's used for a lot of different things a lot of inflammatory um, conditions and some cancers. And the really good news is that it's available really inexpensively around the world, even to countries that don't have a lot of resources. So what they found was that people that are on ventilators died less if they were given, about died less, but one-third of them died less if they were given the dexamethasone. And then people who were not on ventilators but were requiring oxygen, they, they were one-fifth less likely to die. So those numbers aren't, you know, it didn't cure them all, but it is a significant improvement. And Maureen, on this show before, we've talked about what actually happens at COVID-19. It's not just the infection. The, the infection is one thing, but it's actually the immune response that the body has to the infection, what we call a cytokine, a cytokine storm. And it's that storm that ends up damaging the lungs and the brain and the heart and puts the body into kidney failure and all sorts of other problems. So it kind of makes sense that a steroid, which fights the immune system um, and an overactive immune system, would work. And, um, you know, many of us are thinking, why didn't we think of this? Um, but, it, but it is, um, and, and, and so they're working on a protocol right now. The studies are early, but it really, really is encouraging to the point where the World Health Organization Director General was um, very excited and congratulated the UK on this. So again, this is for people with severe um, illnesses such that they're on a ventilator on oxygen. This wouldn't be for mild cases, so please don't take steroids at home or without uh, the direction of, uh, of a physician but, or nurse practitioner, but this is for people in a hospital who are quite sick. Yeah, so there is a little bit of hope there. Now, uh, a lot of people, I hear them saying, we're not going to be back in our offices 100% until there's a vaccine. Uh, what are the chances that there's going to be a vaccine, say, in a year or, you know, at the by the end of the year or because so many researchers are working on this? What are, What's the likelihood? I, yeah, I have to admit, I was predicting the spring of 2020 as the earliest, but the pace that people are working on, and there's a lot of new protocols using RNA and DNA and so forth, I'm kind of optimistic now, Marina. I think there may be something available either, um, maybe even late fall. Um, so we'll have to see. But you're absolutely right. I was thinking about my practice this week, and, and we've talked about this before, about patients going out to their dentist or the physiotherapist or their RMT, their registered massage therapist. People are still scared. People mm-hmm. are saying, you know, I don't want to go out and, and, um, and, you know, respectfully to Dr. Bonnie Henry, she can't, it's going to be hard to keep people inside all the time, but then there's people that are scared to go outside as well. That's right? exactly right. Um, and which leads to my next question is, so there's lots of people who are, you know, getting sick, as we mentioned in the previous segment with mm-hmm. flus and colds and, and automatically people say, and some people are quite sick. I mean, they might have bacterial pneumonia. It may 
may or may not have a COVID-19 component to it, but they are so sick, but they are stable at home. So their, their fever is able to be managed with fever reducers. They are actually being able to take um, fluids. Their color is fine, so they don't have bluish lips. If they have an oximetry, and if you're married to a nurse, you might have one, um, <laughs> that, you know, their oximetry is fine. So, you know, in the 90s, and they're not having any trouble breathing, but people put pressure on these people to go get a test. So they're too sick to go get a test. What are your thoughts on, and, and basically I'd like you to talk to the those who put pressure on others to go get a test when they're too sick to actually get in the car and go get a test. Yeah, so the practical, practical answer there is if you're too sick to get into the car, I mean, how do you even transport yourself and how do you go to a place? Then it just isn't feasible. Um, I suppose in an ideal setting, um, you'd have some sort of home testing available, but we're not there yet. Um, so I guess, that, you know, we always say in medicine and in nursing, you know, we do tests when, we, um, when it's going to change your management. If at the end of the day, the treatment is still lots of fluids, lots of rest, controlling the temperature with acetaminophen, you're going to do that anyway. Um, the ones where we definitely need the test for care, not just for curiosity, but for care, would be people who are getting really sick, and they won't be sitting, they won't stay at home, Maureen. Those will be the ones where you call the paramedics and get trans- transported to the hospital. So to answer your question, if you're not able to get out of the house, you can't get out of the house. Um, and 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 um, you know, I, I think resting and getting, um, you know, following all the proper isolation procedures and staying as far as you can from your family members is the best thing, all the hand-washing mask stuff. But, but, you know, go out and get tested when you can. Yes, exactly. But it's the pressure from people. They think that that is somehow they think that, oh, go get a test, go get a test, because if you're positive, then I should worry. But we need to treat these people as though they are COVID-19, correct? So if you've been in touch with somebody who now has a fever and difficulty breathing and, you know, symptoms of covid um, you need to watch yourself and isolate yourself. Wouldn't that yeah. be wise? Treat, yeah, absolutely. Treat them as if they are, as if they do have it. And remember, even with the test, there's so many false negatives, meaning the test shows up as a negative, but in fact, it, they did have it. And so just having the test done doesn't resolve our our sort of uh, understanding of what might be going on. Exactly. We have about 40% uh, neg- false negatives. Anyway, well, I thank you so much once again, Dr. Parhar, for joining the program and providing great information as usual. Great, Maureen. Always a pleasure. So we were talking about loneliness, and uh, loneliness can increase peripheral vascular resistance, lead to hypertension, stroke, and early death. So especially in this time, it's really important to reach out and touch someone. And guess what? The government's getting involved in that as well. Uh, so we've actually seen, we've heard the terms uh, double your bubble and you can now mingle with another family and, you know, maybe just increase your exposure to other people um, a little bit more than you had before. Um, but also uh, it has been suggested in, um, well, it was actually the Dutch National Institute for Public Health and the Environment um, has suggested that single people in need should find a cuddle buddy or a sex buddy, somebody that they can safely partner with during the pandemic. And so, you know, you've heard of them, friends with benefits. 
<laughs> the benefits of friends. Um, and so this is actually being suggested and it, in terms of um, loneliness and, and ensuring that mental health is somewhat protected. Um, dating is just so different now since the pandemic. Um, dating before the pandemic, two people who initially meet, they might discuss where they see their future is going or if, they, if they're seeing other people. Well, dating in the time of coronavirus has demanded an altogether different tipping point. Uh, what are your social distancing practices? Uh, do you wear a mask when you're outside? Uh, is our future of romantic life to be masks and people holding hands with latex gloves walking down the street? It's not the sexiest scene you've ever seen. But, um, you know, it's important that we maintain thinking about meeting other people, going online safely, um, and uh, ensuring that you check out the background of the person and, and get to know them. And I'm certainly hoping that, you know, one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that people take time to court one another, an old term, um, take the time as opposed to that instant gratification, swipe left, swipe right, you know, there's somebody behind you or 500 people behind you. Um, and, and so I think it's important that, uh, yeah, I think a cuddle buddy or a sex buddy is a phenomenal idea uh, because many, many people have given up. But as we loosen the restrictions, I think it gives us a little bit of comfort to say, yes, if, if I know somebody's background, if I understand their physical and social distancing practices, are they a healthcare worker? Are they, you know, are they at risk? Who are they seeing? Are they careful? If they know somebody, if they've been exposed to somebody who now has a fever and shortness of breath and bluish lips, um, are they still going to uh, isolate themselves and be very careful? Um, so I think that, um, you know, these cuddle buddies, these sex partners, sex buddies uh, must be exclusive. So it means that you can't go from one to the next to the next, but find somebody that you enjoy doing the dirty deed with and, um, uh, you know, and, you know, stay with that person until it doesn't work for you. If it's not mutual or consenting or there are issues or they are controlling or they have anger problems or whatever, because there's a lot of people getting annoyed in this pandemic. And so you can really tell the type of person somebody is by how they deal with, uh, life when it doesn't go their way. And so if you, um, uh, you know, are realizing they're getting to know somebody and they are impatient or they're disrespectful or they're better than thou or they treat you poorly or they, uh, you know, they're not polite. Um, you know, very simple things you can see and think, hmm, I may not want to be with them. Um, and you know what? Sometimes I, I often say to a lot of people that come into my clinical practice, why is it that you think you don't deserve a lover? Um, because they're with somebody who is treating them so poorly and so badly and it's about uh, their own self-esteem. Remember, don't have sex with your partner if they've been isolated because of suspected coronavirus infection. Uh, sex with yourself or sex with others at a distance is a much better option if that is the case. So um, anyway, there's some hope there. Hope for uh, your sex life, hope for intimacy. Uh, I, I know that uh, it's a tough subject, uh, extramarital affairs. They are still going on in this pandemic. I have certainly uh, spoken to many 
patients, if you will, clients online uh, and in my clinical practice who are just gutted uh, because during this pandemic, their partner has still been uh, seeking sex outside of the relationship and and they're feeling that the person who's doing that is putting um, their family at risk. And so it's a, it's a greater risk. So even if that is going on in your life, and I'm certainly not condoning it, but it does happen, you need to take an abundance of precaution in that case uh, or in those cases. And so always be very careful. Always check, um, you know, if somebody has symptoms or is experiencing symptoms and make sure that you trust that person. Um, uh, Because keep in mind, dating and temporary sexual relationships or extramarital affairs, uh, you know, do pose a risk of getting infected or infecting others. So be, that's why Dr. Bonnie Henry in British Columbia, I think she always says, be kind, be calm and be safe. Welcome back to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. And it might have been one too many strokes that caused this issue. But there, uh, there is a concern, a public health concern, a bit of a public health concern, I might be exaggerating, that the pandemic may be contributing to an increase in male genital injuries. And so there have been a number of injuries. One was a dog bite, so I'm not really sure how much the pandemic contributed to that. I think that's a little bit of an exaggeration. It was somebody who just went over to somebody else's house and got a dog bite on the penis, I guess. The dog bit their penis. I'm not sure if the penis, where the penis was at the time, if the penis was in or the penis was out. (laughs) However, uh, take your risks as you may. Uh, And, you know, apparently in Victoria, British Columbia, there is a large elderly population and there has been a small, uh, there's been a smaller number of cases of COVID cases. So I'm trying to get the relationship here. But uh, the injuries included two incidences where men experienced penile fractures. Yes, penile fractures are a thing. And that was during heterosexual activity with their partners. And it also involved drugs and alcohol, apparently. I don't know how old these guys were, uh, to be honest with you. There was also an instance of painful erection that lasted for four days. And that actually is quite often a... I'm not sure if they went to the emergency department. You're supposed to go after four hours. So I'm not sure why you... um, would not um, go to the emergency department after four hours, why you would wait four days having a painful erection. Um, But a lot of people might think, oh, that would be great to have um, a painful, I mean, have an erection, not a painful erection. The most common cause of painful erections is Peyronie's disease. And that's a condition where scar tissue develops in one area of the penis. And then it causes you to have a curve and that results in painful erections. So I'm not exactly sure what happened here if this person um, had this pain for four days. Anyway, had the erection for four days either. Then there was another ruptured testicle, which was sustained when the individual was riding on an all-terrain vehicle. Those are very dangerous. Um, And there was also another penile pain situation because the person was masturbating just a little bit too much. So I can see where that's related to the pandemic. Okay. (laughs) Now I'm getting it. (laughs) 
but before I wasn't really getting it. Um, and the other thing is that maybe with the heterosexual sex, okay, so maybe people aren't in as great of shape or maybe they're having way more sex. That would be great because reports are they're not. Um, but, uh, maybe they're not in such great shape and the incidences of the, of this pen of these penile fractures were it was, um, where the woman was on top. How I got all these details is fabulous. <laughs> um, but a penile fracture is a medical emergency. It is a rare and alarming injury that may occur during sexual intercourse. And it's not the same as a break in your bone. It's a rupture in the two areas of the penis that is responsible for your erection, the corpora cavernosa and the penile sheath. And so the injury can cause long-lasting damage to your urinary function as well as your sexual function. So you need to seek emergency medical attention. There is no time to be embarrassed about this or no time to be ashamed. And also you've got to go COVID or not, you've got to go to the emergency departments. Do not stay away. Do not stay away from the emergency departments for any health reason. If you feel you need to go to the emergency department, you go. Um, but some of the symptoms of a penile fracture include oftentimes men will hear a pop. Um, there also can be bleeding from the penis. There can be dark colored bruising to the penis. There can be issues with urination. Uh, you can, uh, suddenly lose your erection. A lot of men have, uh, erectile dysfunction, which is the inability to attain and or maintain. And that is so important that maintain piece, because I hear from women quite a bit that their partner has, you know, can it, they're okay. They don't have erectile dysfunction. They can get it up, but they just can't keep it up. And so that can be erectile dysfunction. But if you suddenly lose your erection, you haven't had that issue in the past, it can be a sign of a penile fracture. And then you can have significant pain here um, in terms of a penile um, fracture. So it can be a minimal pain, but it can be severe as well. Um, typically given how men deal with the man cold, I'm going to go with, it's a severe pain. Penile fracture symptoms that do not include a popping sound or rapid loss of erection are usually due to another type of injury. And, um, and so the penile fracture ends up looking like an eggplant. So you've got the eggplant sign and the penis is purple and swollen. You can also have swelling in the scrotum and blood in your urine. Um, and you can also have something else because something else could be going on in terms of rupturing of the veins and the arteries in the penis and also a ruptured suspensory ligament. So it may not be a penile fracture. Anyway, um, so you need a physical exam, you need treatment, you, um, there's, you, know, you need to oftentimes have uh, surgical repair. Uh, and so it's basically diagnosed through an assessment. So it's very important that you get the treatment you need. You'll need to have ice packs, a Foley catheter, anti-inflammatory medications, the whole nine yards. Anyway, we are done with the show here. It is a wrap. Um, sorry to leave you on a sore note. Remember when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. You can head on over to my website, maureenmcgrath.com. Happy Father's Day. Everyone have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, 
TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.